Good morning, Gilbert. I'm used to saying good morning, Arcadia. Greetings from Arcadia. I am privileged and honored to be here this morning. I've spoken here many times before, but it's always been in the commons. It's never been in here, well, other than the gospel and racism thing that we did a few months ago, but uh, what a privilege it is to be here. I've been very excited about um, coming here this Sunday. I've been telling all my friends in Phoenix that I got an invitation to preach out of town on Sunday, and so <laughs> made me feel kind of important anyway, so... If you're wondering, my name is Frank, uh, and I'm, I've been a part of Redemption for almost 10 years, uh, now uh, leading the Redemption Arcadia congregation. Uh, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 4 today, and what I want to do is I want to start by just bringing you up to date. I noticed some of you are already getting your Bibles out. I was going to mention that later, but I'll mention it now since you've already started. It's really helpful, especially in this series, but always, to have your Bibles out to be able to look at the text, to be able to refer to what I'm talking about. We will have the text up on the, on the screen, uh, but also if you have it in your hands, either as a book or uh, in your, uh, on an app or whatever, it, it's really helpful for you to be able to follow along. So I want to just review and give some context before we get into chapter 4 so that chapter 4 is more understandable, uh, not only to the people who have been here for the first two uh, episodes of this series, but also for people who are new, uh, who are wondering about uh, the book of Nehemiah in our series. This is our third week in here. So in the year 605 BC, uh, Babylon, which was kind of the new superpower in the world, uh, located about 750 miles east of Judah, they came into Judah. Their armies marched in, led by Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they sacked Jerusalem for the first time. They did it actually three times. Uh, they did it in 605, 597, and 586 as well. 586, they just leveled everything, and that's where we get the book of Lamentations that the prophet Jeremiah wrote. But in, in 605, when they first came in, one of the things that the Babylonians did was they carried away tens of thousands of Jews to Babylon to live in Babylon. They relocated them there, uh, gave them sort of a separate area in which to live in. It wasn't the greatest setup ever, but God had warned that this was going to happen, and this was known as the Great Babylonian Exile, and it lasted somewhere around 70 years. In 539 B.C., almost 70 years later, King Cyrus of Persia, another 250, 300 miles to the east in present-day Iran, ironically, came into Babylon, figured out how to breach the walls of Babylon, and they sacked Babylon, and Persia became the new world power, superpower. Uh, but Persia had a different idea about what to do with captured people, and so they came to the Jews. Now, they'd been there 70 years Probably none of the Jews who were there were actually uh, Jews except perhaps Daniel and a few of his friends. Uh, most of the Jews were actually born in Babylon, but they had heard of their home in Jerusalem. And, and uh, uh, Cyrus came in and said, uh, we're going to repatriate uh, all of you back to Jerusalem and you're going to rebuild Jerusalem and you can rebuild your temple and you can even rebuild your wall if you want to, those of you who want to go back. So thousands and thousands of Jews eventually made their way back to Jerusalem. Some stayed in Babylon, 
Uh, they understood that their home, so to speak, their ancient home was in Jerusalem, but they had made a life in Babylon, and so a few stayed in Babylon, and, and still others actually decided to move east and move into the capital city of Persia, which is Susa. So they moved further away from Jerusalem, and that's where we get the story of Esther, and of course, we have the beginning of the story of Nehemiah, because Nehemiah, who is a Jew, who was probably born uh, in um, in that area somewhere between Babylon and Susa, but he was working for uh, the king. So the Jews repatriated back in 539, 538, led by Ezra and Zerubbabel, and they rebuilt the temple. It took them about 20 years to rebuild the temple. It was finished in 516. And then we pick up Nehemiah chapter 1 in the year 445. So 70 years later, we pick up the beginning of Nehemiah in 445, when some of his brethren, his kin, uh, fellow Jews, come to him and say, listen, we've been back for almost 100 years. We got the temple rebuilt, but the walls are still broken down. So they've gone, since the temple was rebuilt, they've gone now 72 years without walls around Jerusalem. And that's a really important thing for an ancient city to have walls for defense and distinction. And so this was a problem. And so Nehemiah is working in the palace of the king of Persia, who at that time was Artaxerxes, who was the son of Xerxes, who's the king in the book of Esther. So there's some connection there. I love this history stuff, in case you were wondering. And since you're sitting here, you have to listen to it. So. Um, but he's told that the wall is a mess, and, and uh, it has been for decades, and he's deeply upset about this. And so Nehemiah prays about this situation for four months. They came to Nehemiah because he's the cupbearer for the king, and he might be able to do something about it. The problem is the decorum when it comes to ancient kings is really strict. Even as the cupbearer, even as the king's wife, it didn't matter who you were. If you were in the presence of the king and you made the king uncomfortable in any way, shape, or form, if you did not follow protocol and decorum with the king, the king could summarily execute you on the spot, and many kings did that, not only to their cupbearers, but also to their wives and other important people. Think about Haman in the book of Esther being hung from a 70-foot um, gallows. And so Nehemiah couldn't just walk into the king and say, hey, boss, I got a problem. I'd like to go back to Jerusalem. He had to wait until God opened that door, and he had to uh, practice good facial management techniques and not even show that he was sad about anything. You couldn't even be sad in the presence of a king. But after four months, Nehemiah finally lets his guard down. God decides this is the divine uh, moment. And so in chapter 2, the king asks Nehemiah, he says, hey, why are you so sad? I know you're not sick. I, I, I know that's not the problem. I, I know you went and got tested for COVID. You got your test back and it wasn't positive. I, I know it's not sick. So you're, you, this is sadness of the heart. And, and Nehemiah was frightened right then because he knew that he could be executed for being sad in the king's presence. But he took the opportunity to tell the king at great risk to himself. He said, man, my homeland, the, the land of my father's, is broken down. And, and the king responds by saying, what do you need? I want to help. And I love the fact, first of all, that um, Artaxerxes is a Gentile. He's not a Jew, and yet God uses him to help him with God's work. 
and helped Nehemiah, he did. He gave Nehemiah a strong military escort in order to navigate those 1,100 miles back to Jerusalem, which were going to be fairly hostile to a a Jew who's traveling through there. He also gave him resources uh, that the Persians had. He gave him him the papers, the, the right papers he needed to be able to pass through all the checkpoints. He gave them He gave them everything that he needed to be able to get back there. And so he gets back to Jerusalem, and the first thing he does is he goes out at night, and he does some reconnaissance, and he checks out the wall every little bit, but he doesn't tell anybody what he's doing. He keeps it a secret because he doesn't want to let the cat out of the bag. Because the Jews, for for many years, for decades, had tried to rebuild the wall, but every time they tried to rebuild the wall, the neighboring people, especially the Samaritans to the north, the neighboring people would come and attack them, and they didn't want the Jews to rebuild the wall. They didn't want them to be strong. They didn't want them to even become a threat to um, the neighboring people, and so they would attack them. And it got to the point where the people, the neighboring people, wouldn't even have to attack the Jews anymore. All they would have to do is come and threaten them and intimidate them, and the Jews would fold. And the last time that happened was 12 years before Nehemiah got there. The problem, of course, is that Nehemiah is coming in from the outside. He doesn't care about the history. He's on a mission from God, and so it's going to be a little bit different this time. That doesn't stop the people from trying to oppose him. But one of the things that Nehemiah had to break through was this what I would call negative psychological muscle memory. Uh, They've developed this, the Jews have developed this over decades and decades of failure and defeat that all anybody had to do was just kind of go, boop, and they would go, all right, we're not going to do it. So this negative psychological muscle memory was what he was pushing through. And at the end of chapter 2, we get a little bit of that trash talking from Sanballat, And in chapter 4, what we have is the worst, the narrative of the worst of the opposition coming against Nehemiah, primarily from Sanballat and some others, but also we're going to see that there was a little bit of internal opposition as well, and there's so much opposition that there's an entire chapter in the Bible about this opposition, and it's Nehemiah chapter 4. But this is also where we see some of Nehemiah's strongest leadership skills and instincts, but even more important and a direct impetus of Nehemiah's outstanding leadership, we see his unfettered devotion to God and his sovereignty. Nehemiah's unfettered devotion to God and his sovereignty. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read every single verse of chapter 4, but a little bit at a time. Let's start with the first three verses. Now when Samballat heard that we were, rebuilt, we were building the wall. He was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are, you, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? And then Tobiah had to throw his two cents in. He's like Dwight Schrute, you know, after everything has been said. Tobiah the Ammonite, I promise I wouldn't have an office reference today, but I decided to go ahead and have one anyway. So. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone 
wall. So there's a lot more trash talking here from Sam Ballot, and it's pretty serious. First question, why were they so enraged? Well, a couple of reasons. Number one, Samaria had been on top of Judah now for the past several decades, and they like it. Now, there'd been animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews for a couple of hundred years now, and it was, it was at a boiling point now. And if you remember the story of the woman at the well, she was a Samaritan, and she referenced that. So that animosity went on for years and years and years. But, they, but Sambalat was saying, if they're going to build this wall, that'll, that'll, that'll prevent us from being on top of the, of, of the nation of Judah, and it will make them a threat to us. And it's not just the Samaritans, as we'll see later on, but uh, that's the primary reason there. By the way, this reference to what of this army, this army that Sambalat apparently commands, historians tell us that this army that he was speaking in front of was likely more likely a small militia force more suited for evening raids. Historians tell us that if this, if this was a full weight and force army of Samaria uh, and they had invaded Jerusalem, that that would have probably called out the Persian army. It might have taken them a while to get there, but it would have called out the Persian army. And the reason that it would have called out the Persian army was because Zer uh, Artaxerxes would have been angry that the Samaritans had violated his order to leave the Jews alone, and so he would have sent a force out there. But second of all, historians tell us that for some reason, Artaxerxes might have thought it would have been helpful for, for uh, Jerusalem to build a wall there, that it would have helped uh, him somehow militarily. So he had a vested interest in this as well. So it's likely not a large army. It's more of a hollow threat by Sam Ballot, but the Jews didn't know that or understand that, and so it felt like a real threat to them, and they were intimidated. And that leads us to the second bigger reason for the anger and rage. If you think about how verse 2 is worded, you can look at it. You can see, I think, what Sam Ballot is really trying to accomplish, hopefully, without ever going to arms. He's simply reciting the history of the Jews in the last 70 years. He's saying, you guys are too weak. You always have been. The project is too much of a mess. There's too much to do. Uh, they don't have any leadership. They have no resources. And they've never had any lasting motivation to get anything done. They start well, but they can never finish. No matter what they do, they'll never finish. It's that psychological muscle memory. Uh, every Wednesday over in the office here, we have our preaching collective. All the preaching pastors from uh, Redemption get together and talk about the message that's coming up in 11 days. And uh, I was in there 11 days ago, and uh, Neil Pitchell wasn't there, and Sandy Mason wasn't there. And so I was by far the oldest person in the room. So I'm in the room with all these pastors that are in their late 20s, 30s, and early 40s. I'm the oldest one in there, the, the one with the most experience, and I think the most wisdom when it comes to historical matters that, that uh, have to do with Phoenix. And these young guys started talking about how excited they were about the Phoenix Suns. And, and it just, oh, they're doing so great. And what has it been, like 78 years since they've made the playoffs? And they're just so excited. And, and, and oh, wow, wow, if they can get by Denver, and then maybe we could actually get to, what if we win the whole thing? What if we win the NBA championship? They're going on and on and on. And I finally had to stand up and speak up. I had to bring some of my wisdom and experience to bear. I'm a native of Phoenix. 
I was nine years old when the Suns were an expansion team. At that time, they and the Milwaukee Bucks, also an expansion team, they set the record for the most losses in one season in the NBA. The 76ers eventually eclipsed it, but they were horrible. And then I was 10 years old listening on a transistor radio to a couple of you might remember this in this room. I was listening to the coin flip. Anybody remember that? We were flipping a coin with Milwaukee for the first draft pick in that year's pick and in that year's draft. And the first pick was a guy named Lou Alcindor. Anybody know who he is? Anybody yell out the name? Kareem. It was Kareem. And we lost the pick. We lost the, the coin flip. And that's been known since then as the curse of the coin flip on the Suns. And then 1976, the finals against the Boston Celtics. And we should have won that, but it's impossible to play against the Celtics and the NBA refs, I hope you understand. They were in the bag for the Celtics. Later on, the Spurs would become, of course, their team, the NBA refs team. And then, and then in 1981, they had the best record in the Western Conference, and they lost in the first round to the Kansas City Kings, who didn't even win more games than they lost. It was awful. And then 1993, John Paxson and some guy named Michael. It was awful. And then there was 2006, and I have to be honest with you, I haven't cared since 2006. And I told them all of that history. I said, guys, it's in the sun's DNA. It's who they are. They will break your heart. They are going to break your heart. It's in their DNA. And these young guys went all biblical on me. They immediately started calling me Sandballot. And they said, Chris Paul is their Nehemiah. And we're going to do it this year. We're going to rebuild the wall for the sun's. In the past, all Sanballat, or me, had to do was threaten and intimidate, and the Jews would fold. That's all he had to do. And he's right looking back, but now Nehemiah is on the scene, and Nehemiah is not putting up with the history. Nehemiah is not influenced by past failures. Maybe he's learning from past failures, but instead he's moving forward. He's got a new attitude, and this is a new attitude that Sanballat is encountering. And he's not sure what to do with it. They've never faced somebody not only with Nehemiah's skill and leadership, but also somebody who was literally on a mission from God and with God. He's never faced this. Verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God. So Nehemiah begins to pray in the midst of this trash talking. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. How's that for a prayer? That prayer sounds a little bit vengeful, doesn't it? I mean, what happened to vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That would be Deuteronomy and, and, and Romans. What we have to understand is that the words in verses 2 and 3 from Samballad and Tobiah are not only words against Nehemiah and what he's trying to do and the people who are there, but they are also spoken as words against Yahweh, against God. Gordon McConville, who's a great Old Testament scholar, writes this, the motive of this prayer is not revenge, but rather the honor of God, whose purpose Samballad and Tobiah do not understand or care about and wish to thwart. If you've never encountered prayers like that before, read the Psalms and read the book of Lamentations because there are prayers like that in there. They're called imprecatory prayers. Look at verse 6. So we built the wall 
And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. That's rather succinct. And so the people had a mind to work. I wanted to try to understand that. I mean, the, the wall had been in ruin for decades. They had their chance to rebuild it, but now they have a mind to work. And here's what we're discovering in Nehemiah 4, and we'll continue to, to discover. It's that Nehemiah's response to problems is a picture of perceptive and comprehensive leadership that people naturally desire to follow. His leadership combines exhortation of the people and dependence on God. So here's what Nehemiah does. He shows and demonstrates common sense flexibility, practical strategizing, absolute preparation, encouraging supervision, and, and he demonstrates constant uncompromising prayer and dependence on God. There is no such thing as a perfect leadership formula that'll get everyone to follow. But Nehemiah's methodology isn't a bad one to try. It's pretty worthy of trying. Here it is. You can, you can sum it up in two simple points. Nehemiah starts with God, and he concerns himself with other people. He starts with God, and he concerns himself with others. And now in verses 7 through 9, we start to get a picture of what's going on. But when Sanballat and Tobiah the Arab, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So we now have the full picture of Jerusalem's enemies. Jerusalem is literally surrounded now. If you plot out all of those enemies, they're surrounded. And some of these antagonists have been enemies of the Jews for quite some time. Of course, the Samaritans are involved there, but consider the Ashdodites. They're from the city of Ashdod, which is one of the five ancient Philistine cities that gave Israel so much trouble some 550 years earlier. So they've been telling the stories, and they still have a bone to pick. And these enemies plotted together to fight against the Jews and cause confusion for the Jews. So let's define that confusion. Again, a major military initiative against the Jews would have probably backfired once the Persians got wind of it, but they could still run small raids of terror and use a strategy of confusion. In other words, what they were probably doing was trying to interrupt the, the Jewish lines of inventory, of resources, of communication, of food, whatever they could do to just sort of interrupt the project. And so what did the Jews do in response? They prayed, they prepared, they worked, and they set out guards. They did everything. But there was still great consternation and anxiety. The campaign of confusion and intimidation was apparently working. Uh, look at the next several verses, starting in 10. In Judah, it was said... The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. 
Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So what's happening, not just in Jerusalem, but even in the larger area of Judah, is they're remembering their history of getting harassed and oppressed by their neighbors. And so it's more of this psychological memory kicks in. The project's too big. The mess, the rubble is too overwhelming. The nation's leadership is too weak. Our enemies are too determined, and they cry, please send everyone home so we don't suffer another defeat. And they were also experiencing the problem that the men who had gone to rebuild the wall, they weren't producing anything at home for their household, so there was no household income. They were having trouble paying their bills as well. So they had all kinds of problems. And again, this demonstrates, I think, how hard it has been since the return from exile began nearly 100 years ago. And the fact that Judah needed, desperately needed, godly and courageous leadership. So Nehemiah prepared the people. And he prepared them for everything. He prepared them for work, for battle, for dependence on God. And he prepared them for victory. He said, we're going to win. Anybody like the Jack Reacher novels? Anybody in here? Okay. So Nehemiah is like, a little bit like an Old Testament Jack Reacher. You know, he hopes for the best, he prepares for the worst, and he never does anything thinking he's going to lose. That's Nehemiah's attitude as well. And he did it with both courage and shrewdness. With faith in and under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God, Nehemiah prepares and strategizes with a vision toward accomplishing what God sent him to do. And even though God is in charge, all of this still took courage and it still took preparation. It still took prayer. It still took strategy. Nehemiah and the people had to do their part. Um, You know, I don't just walk in on Sunday and and kind of flip open the Bible and say, okay, God, help me preach. Don't do that. I also don't prepare for Sunday without praying and without inviting the Holy Spirit to influence and, and guide me. There has to be both. And the same should be true with whatever I'm doing. The same should be true with whatever you're doing because God calls us to both. He calls us to both faith and action. He calls us to prayer and preparedness. It's Psalm 127. If the Lord does not build the house, the workers labor in vain. Something else quickly before moving on. We see that Nehemiah has to lead through sabotage, not only from outside of his people, but we're beginning to see some inside of his people. Inside the church, there's a bit of sabotage. But wherever the sabotage came from, he had to lead through it. Edwin Friedman writes in his most recent book, and he reminds us, if you haven't, he says, you haven't led anything until you have experienced sabotage. Seems that too many leaders want to lead something as long as there's no pushback, no trouble. Then look at the next six verses, 15 through 20. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held their spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon in the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. 
So just a note about that trumpet in verses 18 through 20. When I was a kid, I don't know what it is like today, but when I was a kid, the trumpet was the instrument. That was the instrument. I played the clarinet when I was a kid. Nothing more geeky. And my apologies to those of you who play the clarinet. But compared to the trumpet, forget about it. I envied those kids that got to play the trumpet. They were brassy, cool, commanding. I just had a clarinet. That was it, you know? Also, as a youngster, again, I'm dating myself a little bit. A couple of you might resonate with this. One of my favorite things to listen to in my house uh, was a group called Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. Anybody? Oh, yeah. Okay, if you haven't listened, it's good stuff, I'm telling you. Okay? So I'd listen to that and then play my clarinet, and I would be depressed. But 2,500 years ago, the trumpet was more than just a musical instrument of entertainment, joy, and coolness. Trumpets were instrumental in warning, gathering, and motivating the people. You saw what I did there, instrumental. It would warn, gather, and motivate people. Today, we have alarms and sirens. Back then, it was the trumpet. And verse 20 is really amazing to consider, the juxtaposition and the irony in verse 20. Nehemiah says, rally there, rally everybody there, our God will fight for us. You need to come, but our God will fight for us. Our tendency, I've found in the church, is we depend, we either depend way too much on our own ability, our own talent, our education, our, our uh, intelligence, our ingenuity, our desire, we depend on that, or... We don't depend enough on ourselves. We, we, figure, we figure God's going to do it. We hear God's call, but we're like, eh, he'll do it. Somebody will do it. Somebody else will do it. We need both. We need to understand that we are called, but that God is fighting for us, that God is with us, the Holy Spirit is filling us. Those last three verses. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Sometimes... God's people are called to put everything else on hold in order to get his work done. In other words, sometimes we have to sleep with our clothes on, the clothes that we've been wearing all day and that we're going to wear the next day. Sometimes that's what we're called to as God's people. I want to wrap up with this. Again, if you have your Bibles and you want to go to where I'm going to go, it's Philippians chapter 2. As I think about Nehemiah's situation... And his decision to leave Susa and to go and take on this project of rebuilding the wall. I see shadows of Jesus' decision that Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2. Think about it. Personally, Nehemiah is thriving. He has a government job with government benefits. He's living in the palace. He's living in luxury. He's eating the best food that the nation has to offer. As Tom Schrader used to say, he might not be able to get life insurance in his job, but nevertheless, he was eating really good food, living with the royals. He had his life in the wheelhouse. 
And yet he chose to leave. Why? Because God's people and God's city and God's house were broken. And he, needed to, he knew he needed to do something about that because of God's call on his life. His heart was broken by that. And so he takes on a nearly impossible mission for God and he was willing to encounter something that he probably wouldn't ever encounter in Susa. He was willing to encounter danger and possible death. Look at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, and therefore God has highly exalted him. Jesus saw how broken we are. And he said, I don't need to stay here with the Father and the Holy Spirit. I need to be sent by the Father to do something that's nearly impossible and only I can do. And that saved my people from their sin. And so he was willing to come down here. And he suffered death for coming down here. There's a shadow of Jesus in what Nehemiah is doing. And we need to remember, spoiler alert, when we get to the end of the story of Nehemiah, we need to remember that the people still, even after all they've been through, they still would rebel against the commands of God. And eventually Jesus did have to come to set everything right once for all by going to the cross and being raised from the dead. The forgiveness of our sins and the new creation that we have in a resurrected life with Jesus. Personal thriving is good. I am all for personal thriving, and I pray that everybody in here thrives. But don't allow it to cost your commitment to opportunity for or mission with God, because that is the highest calling that we have as exemplified in Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for, for who you are. We thank you for your word and its truth. We thank, you, we thank you for calling Nehemiah. And so interesting how long it took. That also reminds us that your timing is perfect. And that we need to seek you and be patient. Father, let, us, let Nehemiah be an exemplar for our lives. Yes, that's true. But also let Nehemiah's life point us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Give us the courage to do that. Give us the courage to come to Christ, to give our lives to Him, to be embraced by the Savior, to be loved and given grace and mercy by you through your Son. God, we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.